Hello, I'm Rachel Bevin from the Oncology Network. Welcome to the Oncology Podcast's Experts on Point series. Is Australia ready for a national lung cancer screening program? If so, what would the lung screening program look like? Is it cost effective? How many lives could it save? In today's episode, I explore fascinating new research on lung cancer screening programs with Associate Professor Mariana Weber. Mariana is a cancer epidemiologist who leads the lung cancer evaluation and policy stream at the Daffodil Centre. She is working towards establishing a reliable evidence base to support a national targeted lung cancer screening program in Australia. This is a fascinating and timely episode as Australia waits. Will a national screening program be approved in 2023? We'll certainly keep you posted. And just a reminder that to access all of our free podcasts, including our brand new series on diagnostics called Beyond the Slide, registered healthcare professionals are invited to join the Oncology Network. Head over to oncologynetwork.com.au to find out more. It's free and it only takes a moment. This is Rachel Babin. And this is the Oncology Podcast. Hi, Mariana. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you very much for having me. My pleasure. Now, before we get started, I always like to ask a personal question, if I may. Just helps our listeners to get to know you better before we get stuck into the details. Can you tell us something surprising about yourself or about your life outside of the oncology world? Well, I had to smile at this question because in this day and age, it seems like nothing is surprising. (laughs) (laughs) So I really had to stretch to think, what is surprising about my life? And this is probably not that surprising, but I did start learning ballet when I was in my early 30s. And now 15 years or so on, I can say that I'm probably still considered a beginner. (laughs) It's one of those things that's very difficult to master when you're an adult. Yes, I imagine so. I mean, I had lessons when I was a child and it was very difficult for me. Then. Yeah. <laughs> Not naturally graceful. <laughs> oh, good on you. So do you compete? Oh, God, or, no. No, no, no. Have you performed? No, not not with ballet. No, no. no. <laughs> just Really just, yeah, personal development for fun. It's almost like a meditation. It's great exercise. Yeah, it's great. It's wonderful. Yeah, so does it help you with that kind of burnout and work-life balance? Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah. I highly recommend it to anybody. (laughs) Excellent. Well, thank you very much. Now we'll move on to lung cancer screening. So what inspired your interest in thoracic oncology? Well, I guess I am a cancer epidemiologist and I have been working at the research division at Cancer Council New South Wales for over 15 years. And when I started in that role, it was primarily working on a longitudinal study of healthy aging. So this study is called the 45 and Up Study, and it has over 250,000 people from New South Wales in the study, and they filled in a health and lifestyle questionnaire, and they've been followed now for about 15 years. So my role was really quantifying risk factors for cancer in the Australian context and looking at patterns of care and pathways to diagnosis for people with cancer. And that work included a focus on smoking as a cancer risk factor. It also included characterising people who are likely to engage in cancer screening. And in the last five years or so, we've focused on patterns of care and outcomes for participants with lung cancer. 
and this work has really been spurred on by a fabulous collaboration that we've had with a group of respiratory physicians from all around Australia who are responsible for building the foundations for evaluating the feasibility of lung cancer screening in Australia. And they have been responsible for the only Australian-based lung cancer screening studies. So we've been working closely with them, getting clinical and trial data, and we're using those data in our health economic models of lung cancer screening at the Daffodil Centre. That's fascinating. It must be really interesting in being involved in a project for such a long time. Yeah, yeah. I'm really privileged to have, you know, that they've kept me on for all that time. But um, yeah, Cancer Council <laughs> New South Wales is a wonderful organisation to work for. I absolutely agree. So the focus of the podcast today is about screening. Now, there have been a couple of international trials recently that may change things. So I'm hoping you can talk us briefly through them. Could you start with the Dutch-Belgian Nelson trial for me? Yeah, so there have been many trials on lung cancer screening, but the two trials that were large enough to detect a difference or that were powered enough to demonstrate a statistically significant effect were the Nelson trial that you've just mentioned, which was conducted in Europe, but also the National Lung Screening Trial, which was conducted in the US. And I think it probably makes sense to talk about the two trials together, just because there were a lot of similarities in those trials. So in 2011, the National Lung Screening Trial, this is the one in the US, that was the first to demonstrate a significant lung cancer mortality benefit. And then the Nelson trial results followed in 2020. So the evidence for lung cancer screening is really quite new. Both of these trials tested the use of a low-dose CT scan of the chest to determine whether asymptomatic people who had a history of heavy smoking could be diagnosed early and therefore have better outcomes. And before these trials, there was really no technology that could effectively detect lung cancer early in asymptomatic people. And I think It's worth emphasising that the aim of cancer screening is to detect early disease before it's symptomatic. So people who are eligible for screening are those who are well and that they're not showing any sign of disease. So if a person has symptoms, then they would not be screened and their symptoms would be investigated as part of a diagnosis pathway, which is very different to a screening pathway. So these two trials were very similar. They recruited volunteers with a history of heavy smoking and eligibility was defined broadly by the number of years they'd smoked, the number of cigarettes they'd smoked per day and also their age. So in the Nelson trial, the volunteers were aged 50 to 74 and they had to have smoked more than 15 cigarettes per day for more than 25 years or more than 10 cigarettes per day for more than 30 years. And if they no longer smoked, they had to have quit within the last 10 years. And similarly, for the NLST, they were aged 55 to 74. They had to have 30 pack years at least, and they had to have quit within the last 15 years. So slightly different criteria around their smoking history, slightly different criteria around age. So the Nelson trial recruited around 15,000 volunteers, of which around 85% were men. And the NLST recruited 53,000 volunteers and 60% of them were men, 40% were women. And in both trials, participants received an, a low-dose CT scan of the chest. In the NLST, they had three scans, which were 12 months apart. 
and the Nelson trial originally, they also had three scans 12 months apart. And then towards the end of the trial, they received a bit of extra funding. So the participants received a fourth scan about 18 months after their third scan. So in both the trials, the scans were assessed for lung nodules or lesions. So this was the early signs of a cancer growing, a tumour. However, as you can imagine, many of the participants had nodules and this was the difficult part of screening, remembering that these people are without symptoms. So determining which nodules are malignant and which are benign can be tricky. And to put it in perspective, across all randomised control trials, around 22 to 50% of the participants have a lung nodule detected at baseline. Between 3 and 13% will develop a new nodule after baseline. However, only around 1% to 3% of all participants will end up developing lung cancer. So it's like trying to find a needle in a haystack. Yeah, and it's this is the thing with screening tests. They're never perfect. So this is why there's always this challenge of balancing the harms and benefits. And both the trials assess the nodules based on size. So in the NLST, they followed up any nodule that was four millimetres or bigger. And in the Nelson trial, they used a volumetric method. And nodules were classified by volume and volume doubling time. So in both trials, lung cancer was detected earlier in the screening arm compared to the control arm. And after six and a half years of follow-up in the NLST, 10 years of follow-up in the Nelson, they found a 20 to 24% decrease in lung cancer mortality. And this is a significant reduction. And Nelson actually found that the, the benefits were better for females. They found a 40, almost 40% reduction in women in their trial. And so since the results of these effectiveness trials were released, researchers have now turned to trying to understand the best way of implementing lung cancer screening into their health systems. And so now to Australia. So for our international listeners, I should mention there currently isn't a lung cancer screening program in Australia. Australia does have wonderful cancer screening programs, but lung isn't currently included. But should it be, Mariana? Well, If you're asking me, I would definitely say yes. (laughs) I mean, Australia could definitely benefit from a lung cancer screening program. Like many other places in the world, lung cancer is the most common cause of cancer death in Australia. And a large proportion of people are diagnosed at a late stage when prognosis is poor. So currently around 40% of people with lung cancer are diagnosed at stage four when five-year relative survival is only around 3%. Whereas those that are diagnosed early have a five-year survival of almost 70%. So we have a lot to gain from lung cancer screening, but also because people with lung cancer have very high levels of psychological distress, very poor quality of life, and it has a terrible impact on families and communities. But as I've mentioned, evidence supporting lung cancer screening effectiveness is only relatively new. And since the trial results came out, Um, There's been a lot of work worldwide looking at the evidence around implementation. So demonstrating that the screening tool works is one thing, but translating those mortality benefits from the trial setting into the local health systems is something completely different. And so far, lung cancer screening has been set up to varying degrees in parts of Europe, parts of Asia, in Canada, the US, the UK, although none of those 
programs are a full national screening program similar to what we have in Australia with bowel, breast and cervical cancer. So the lessons learned potentially from implementation of lung cancer screening in other jurisdictions are still just developing and there will never be a one-size-fits-all given that health systems differ from population to population. But in terms of where we're at in Australia, in 2020, Cancer Australia, who is our national cancer control agency, they conducted an inquiry into the prospects of a national targeted lung cancer screening program. And the inquiry recommended in favour of lung cancer screening. And this has also now been assessed by the Medical Services Advisory Committee. And both have made a recommendation to government for a national targeted lung cancer screening program. So this is really a very positive step forward and we're hoping to hear about next steps early next year. So fingers crossed we'll get something up very soon. So potentially some big changes. So if everything is approved and you know things start to be put in place next year, how will the screening program look like? So first of all, what kind of people will be invited to participate? Well, I mean, all of these, you know, it's all up for grabs at this point. The Cancer Australia have recommended a certain criteria, which is using a risk tool, a PLCO risk tool. But then MSAC have made a different recommendation and they've made a recommendation which is more similar to the eligibility criteria for the trials. So 30 pack years type criteria of smoking history. So, I mean, the answers to these questions and many others are yet to be confirmed. Cancer Australia has developed a screening pathway as part of their inquiry and they've proposed a potential roadmap for screening. But I think the next step will be for these processes to be piloted. But firstly, we would need a public education campaign to bring awareness to the program. I mean, given our other cancer screening programs, Australians have a general understanding of what cancer screening is and have a general kind of understanding of the notion that normally detecting cancer early is usually a good thing. However, with even with the, our existing cancer screening programs, participation rates aren't great. So, for example, for mm-hmm. bowel cancer, only around 40% of people participate. So, optimising participation rates will be a real challenge. And since the people that would be eligible for screening have a history of heavy smoking, I mean, smoking is a highly stigmatised behaviour. And so, stigma along with other factors can really impact engagement with screening. So that will be a challenge. Yes, perceptions of stigma can be very powerful. Not that long ago, I spoke to Michael Krasovitsky and he is doing some work with COSA around ageism. And he mentioned in particular older patients with lung cancer and how they really do face this double whammy of bias, the stigma of being a smoker. Do you you envisage that that will be quite challenging, getting the public behind? It's a real shame, though, because, I mean, most people, when they start smoking, they're teenagers, they're kids, they're Mm. children, and nicotine is a highly, highly addictive substance. So, I mean, I I think it's really unfair that people are stigmatised for having tobacco dependence. It's not an easy thing to overcome. And often smoking, it's sort of driven by structural factors as well. I mean, we know that people with low levels of health literacy, people, low socioeconomic areas, I mean, that they have a high, they have 
you know, higher rates of smoking. So there's a real equity issue here as well. But I know that, you know, this is on Cancer Australia's radar and Mm -hmm. hopefully, you know, there will be a lot of investment and research effort put into engaging these people in the best and, and, you know, a culturally safe way. I imagine it's going to take a fair amount of creativity because the people that you need to reach aren't necessarily the easiest people to reach, particularly when we're talking about lower socioeconomic groups, regional rural areas. It does remind me when you were speaking, we spoke to Derek Raghavan over in the States last year, and he had set up uh, what he called his Raghavan, which was a mobile lung screening van. So perhaps uh, solutions like that, something a bit more creative will be the key. Do you envisage that? A nice team of screening vans? Yes, <laughs> yes. I mean, the wonderful Professor Kwan Fong at the University of Queensland, who runs all of our lung cancer screening studies in Australia, he leads them up. He has grant through the ACRF and he's got a lung cancer screening mobile van. He's getting one ready to hit the road soon and we'll see. Hopefully that will lead to, you know, great results. But yeah, and and I think that was part of Cancer Australia's plan as well to test the feasibility of a mobile screening van, much like breast screen in in Australia Mm. goes to town to town with the van. And perhaps we should say for the wider audience that lung cancer screening is fairly straightforward, the process of it, as if you're invited to participate. Yeah, so I think at the moment, recruitment will be a real challenge, as we've just discussed. But at the moment, the pathway into screening is envisaged that it's probably going to be via a GP or other health workers. So they would have to assess someone's eligibility in terms of whether they are a long-term heavy smoker, basically, and their age. And and if they've quit smoking, I think around 50% of people who would be eligible for screening have actually quit smoking and have been quit for, for a number of years. So it's about getting assessing whether someone's at high risk enough to be eligible for screening. And hopefully, if they're not high risk enough, that's great news that they don't have to enter into the, the system in the in, you know the process this way. But for those that are high risk, then I think the idea is that the GPs would refer them on to existing radiology clinics for screening. I know that other jurisdictions are trialing other models. So, some in some places, they have dedicated lung cancer screening clinics when they have Mm -hmm, dedicated, mm -hmm. you know, nurse navigators that can liaise with participants and follow up with them and conduct the risk assessment. So, yeah, I guess it's just a matter of getting started and seeing what works Mm -hmm. in our local areas. And I know that Cancer Australia are consulting with clinicians and consumer groups in an effort to get the program right. Yeah, fantastic. Now, screening programs are, of course, quite expensive. And so there's always a need to look at costs and benefits. How expensive is it going to be and will it save lives? Yes, it will save lives. And I mean, it will be expensive. I mean, any new health intervention is going to be expensive. But I guess it's more about, you know, maximizing the number of lives saved and weighing that up against the costs of screening and treatment combined. So when we conduct cost-effectiveness analysis, we really try to identify scenarios in which we save the most lives at the lowest overall cost. And this is usually 
for, for screening, it's usually a balance of optimising things like eligibility criteria, screening intervals, and looking at participation and screening adherence rates. So, I mean, Cancer Australia, they predicted that a lung cancer screening program would save 12,000 lives in the first 10 years of the program. And I mean, I know that they did a budget impact analysis, but so we've conducted cost-effectiveness analyses for lung cancer screening and found that it would be cost-effective if we could achieve the same level of mortality benefits within the Australian healthcare system that was achieved in the trials. So, of course, cost-effectiveness depends on people actually participating and adhering to the screening process because screening has to be acceptable, has to be accessible. So, ultimately, the cost and the cost effectiveness will come down to how the program is implemented. And if the government supports a pilot program, then these issues can be tackled over time and optimised as the program's rolled out. And is there a risk of causing any harm with a national lung cancer screening program like this? Yeah, so cancer screening comes with potential harms. All cancer screening tests and lung cancer screening is no different. Because, as I said, screening is meant for people with, who are well, with no symptoms. There is the potential harms of radiation exposure, although in this age group, the harms of radiation exposure are likely to be minimal because it takes a long time for that exposure to lead to disease. But there is the risk of false positives leading to unnecessary diagnostic interventions and the psychological mm-hmm. distress involved in managing these findings, which are not likely to be cancer. So in the Nelson trial, around 2% of participants were referred to a pulmonologist for workup and diagnostics, but lung cancer was only detected in half of them. However, around 10% were sent for additional scans around three and six months. So this would have been a very stressful time waiting to find out whether they had cancer or not. So in this case, the psychological harms were not inconsequential. However, with well-designed and effectively adopted programs, most of these harms can be mitigated and the benefits will outweigh the harms. So are you quite optimistic that it will be rolled out soon and that it will start to save lives soon? Well, we were really pleasantly surprised and delighted that the MSAC supported the lung cancer screening program. So that was really great news. But first, the program needs to be funded, but hopefully that isn't far off. And in terms of timelines, well, we really have no idea. The National Bowel Cancer Screening Program began, the pilot began in 2006, and it was only fully implemented in 2020. So that was a really long, that took a, that was a long process. So I imagine with lung cancer screening, it may be similar. Pilot study will be conducted initially and then we'll see what comes from that. Oh, fantastic. Thank you. Now, before we wrap up, is there a key take home message that you'd like to share with the oncology community around lung screening? Obviously, if they're an oncology who works with lung cancer, then this will have real implications for their workload and, you know, the way the health system works. So I think if they're interested in knowing more about the current plans for the program, then it might be worth having a look at the Cancer Australia's report, which is available online, and we can share a link to that. But also they can contact Cancer Australia directly if they had questions. 
But in our research at the Daffodil Centre, we're building a microsimulation model of lung cancer, and we are always on the lookout for medical oncologists in lung cancer who might be interested in sharing their expertise in treatment decisions. Because the treatment landscape for lung cancer is changing so quickly with innovation in immunotherapies and targeted therapies, we are always struggling to find current data on treatment utilisation rates. And at the moment, we're working with three wonderful medonks who have helped us identify some of their treatment algorithms, but we're always happy to have more, especially if you're working in regional areas. So that's just a little advertisement for our work. Um, If anyone wants to get in touch, that would be really appreciated. Fantastic. Well, thank you. And hopefully we do have some thoracic medical oncologists listening that will be able to help you. Now, are there any other resources that you might like to mention if listeners want to find out more about what you do? I mean, I've talked about that Cancer Australia report a lot, but there is a lot of information in there. So that's a great resource that kind of is a good summary of the evidence up till that point, which was 2020, and also contextualises it or localises it within the Australian context. So that's a great report to look at. But I can also share the links for the trials, the trial papers that were out. And of course, if anybody wants more information on our work, there's the Daffodil Centre website. Um, If anyone out there is interested in knowing more about lung cancer, In particular, there's always the Cancer Council New South Wales website or Cancer Council Australia. And of course, the Lung Foundation is a great place to go for resources if people are interested in, you know, getting support for a personal diagnosis or, you know, getting support Mm. for their families. Highly recommend them as well. Thank you. It's always nice to have some patient-focused resources recommended as well. So thank you. We will include links to all of those things in the show notes on oncologynetwork.com.au. Well, thank you very much, Mariana, for coming on the show today and sharing your thoughts with us. It's been a really interesting conversation. Thank you. And I'm really hoping that you get some good news in the new year. Pleasure. Thank you very much. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) Take care. You've been listening to the Oncology Podcast's Experts on Point series, brought to you by the Oncology Network. To hear more podcast episodes, head over to our Oncology portal at www.oncologynetwork.com.au. Registration is free for healthcare professionals and will give you access to exclusive content, such as our fantastic diagnostic series, Beyond the Slide. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please share it with your colleagues. This is Rachel Babin, and this is the Oncology Podcast.